So so we're back after a hiatus. Uh, I think we finally watched Roadhouse. Derek, you've seen Roadhouse, right? Oh, yeah, I've seen Roadhouse. Colin, you've seen Roadhouse. No, I haven't seen Roadhouse. Colin? Hello, Colin. <laughs> I, I don't hear him. Uh-oh. Plan B. Uh, I just watched Mystic River. Oh, well, that's good. Okay, we'll do Mystic River. You won't see me. Welcome to You Haven't Seen, the podcast where Adam, Derek, and Colin force each other to watch movies they should have seen a long time ago. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the long-awaited uh, You Haven't Seen. It's been uh, a little while. We've been on a little bit of a, a hiatus. Uh, with me is Derek. Hi, how are we? And I guess we're short one robot warrior today. Colin couldn't be with us, but we thought, um, hey, there's two out of three. That's not too bad. We're here to discuss Mystic River. The good news is Colin was not the one who hadn't seen this movie. Yeah, that really would have ruined things. It would have made it a little more difficult. Made it very difficult. No, but I confess I was the one that had not seen uh, this 2003 Clint Eastwood masterpiece, one, in, one might say. I'm enjoying hearing whether you're embarrassed of yourself right now. Am I embarrassed? I am never embarrassed. I, I learned long ago, I think preschool, that it's okay to be me. Actually... Uh, Mr. T taught me to be somebody, if you remember. I don't remember that. Oh, that you haven't seen Be Somebody with Mr. T? I don't think so. Next episode. Okay. Is that an actual movie? Uh, <laughs> that's what Wikipedia is for, my friend. You can find out for yourself. Wow. <laughs> uh, he did a whole series of, like, <laughs> you just got to watch them, I guess. Are they like hour-long PSAs? Or? Yeah, Be Somebody or Somebody's Fool. Wow. Host is a motivational video hosted by Mr. T from the A-Team. 1984. I was a little too cool to watch that kind of stuff. So. Or were you? I, don't, I just had my 20-year high school reunion, and I got to tell you, I was pretty cool there. Because you had all of your teeth? <laughs> I, I did feel... Um, Apologize to the uh, Revis High School class of uh, 1992, if any of you are listening. I assume you have teeth as well. They do. They were very nice, and it was very interesting. So I was glad I went. You should go when you go when you finally become old. Uh, in a good 10, 15 years, I think I got. I have to, I have to work the math. <laughs> Not quite that many. All right, should we uh, should we talk Mystic River here? Yeah, or let's do. I'll do a quick plot summary here. So. Mystic River, 2003, Clint Eastwood, based on the uh, uh, Lehane novel, set in um, Irish neighborhood of Boston. You've got three buddies are out front playing some, uh, I don't know, was playing some uh, some stickball. I think that's what it was. And uh, it says Jimmy, Dave, and Sean. Um, Do people still play stickball? Like. I know this is set a while ago, but I mean, even back then, were they still playing that? It was the 70s. That seems like a way to set the tone for the 70s. 
Yes. I mean, switch to wiffle ball. I'm not sure when that took over. I was a wiffle ball kid. Yeah, I guess I was an inside kid. So, okay, true. Anyways, uh, three buddies out front playing, uh, crazy car pulls up guy impersonating a cop lures. Um, it was a Dave into the back of his car. I think it's insinuated that one of them is a priest and, uh, off they drive fast flash forward 20 years, uh, in the neighborhood. Turns out Dave had a little, uh, little run in with these men of the sexual variety and, uh, he's not all with it. He's got a son and a family still living in the neighborhood. Uh, Jimmy as so Dave is Tim Robbins. Jimmy is played by Sean Penn is a, uh, ex con and owns the neighborhood sort of corner store. And then uh, third friend, Sean is now a uh, detective. So it seems like they've all got it together a little bit. You forgot about Kevin Bacon, oh, Sean uh, played by Kevin Bacon. Of course. Um, Seems like they all got it together. Uh, Jimmy's got uh, kind of a, a a loose, crazy party girl of a 19-year-old daughter. So she's got this boyfriend. Um, Jimmy's got a son. Sean, I think at this point you find out that his wife and, and son, his wife has taken his young son away through some situation that we don't really know about. Next day, turns out um, Jimmy's daughter is found uh, dead. She was in a car accident, shot and beaten. Uh, in At the same time, um, Dave is, uh, comes, excuse me, at the same time, Dave comes home and he's got a bloody hand and he's crying and he tells his wife a story about how he beat a mugger to death. Well, uh, Sean is inevitably assigned to the case. Being from the neighborhood, he tries to get to the bottom of it. Uh, lots of things occur. There's a whole situation with Jimmy's daughter's boyfriend's dad was a thug from the neighborhood. They got into a little run-in back in the day. Lots and lots of uh, of interconnections of these stories. Uh, we're led to believe that Dave is, in fact, the killer of Jimmy's daughter. And uh, Jimmy takes it upon himself to deal out some justice. While being beaten, he confesses thinking that will save his life, that yes, he did, in fact, kill his daughter. Um, they shoot Jimmy, excuse me, they shoot Dave, they toss him into the Mystic River, and uh, the next day, evidence comes to light that it was, in fact, um, Jimmy's daughter's boyfriend's <laughs> uh, little <laughs> brother, who was just playing a prank and it went wrong, um, so they shot her trying to just hijack her car and um, she ran away and then they killed her so that she couldn't turn them in. Um, Sean figures this out, but his wife comforts him and says, or sorry, Jimmy figures this out as Sean lets him know what the situation was that, uh, Dave did in fact beat up a child molester and kill him. And that's, and they were looking for him on that account. And, uh, we're led at the end to believe that Jimmy gets away with the murder, but Sean being the diligent, um, cop has got his eye on him. That's I about it. Think was I think I got all the twists and turns. Yeah, the names were pretty uh, plain Jane kind of names, right. so it is difficult to keep no, straight. I, I was I was trying. Um, I got my notes here, um, but still, because in my mind they never went beyond Sean Penn, Kevin Bacon, and uh, Tim uh, Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. <laughs> I can't even get their names straight. I was going to say, isn't uh, that isn't he in your favorite movie? 
Which favorite movie? Really? Lebowski? He wasn't in Big Lebowski. He was not in the Big Lebowski. The tape, crazy tape the movie the Stephen King movie that I do not care for Bob that Roberts? everyone else seems Oh, it's Shawshank Redemption. Uh, my wife just chimed in in the background there. Uh, yes, he is in that movie. But yeah, the names were a little same and there were lots of twists and turns. But to start with, the, the, the good thing about this movie was it really wasn't about the murder mystery. Nope. Um, this was its ever present backdrop, but you didn't, you know, in, in the back of my mind, I'm tr- I was trying to figure out what was going on, but it wasn't my number one goal. I really wanted to figure out where these relationships were headed. These were friends that hadn't talked regularly in years and years and circumstance brought them together. And what were they going to do with this? What what I find fascinating is just how, um, how you don't feel cheated at the end that it's like some mystery. I hate mysteries where you can't solve them mm-hmm. where there's like, Oh, by the way, there's this other character that you've never seen before or you only saw for three seconds early in the movie. And you would have no idea that it could be this person. And uh, I didn't feel cheated at the end that it was yeah, that. We were definitely given all the pieces. Um, there was a little involving uh, the the boyfriend's brother and then his uh, his silent friend that uh, that ended up being the uh, the hatchet man. But um, some of that we did, we couldn't quite know. But they were present from the very beginning. I will I'll say this about the setting too. Besides Celtic pride, let's take that out of the equation. Is Boston just like a great city? Like it plays such a key role, I think, in just how enjoyable this movie is. Definitely a neighborhood, um, a a city of neighborhoods, very much like Chicago in that respect. Uh, The problem I have, and this is more of a problem with films that are set in Chicago, to, to digress a little bit here, is that films about that are set in Chicago are always about Chicago. So here it's this, it's the same with Boston is that the story is about kids from the neighborhood, you know, either made good or it's, it's about the neighborhood and it's about Boston. Um, that it's tough just to set a movie. Hey, could be any city. Um, so it, it gives, I'm sure there are places like this, uh, within Boston, but, I don't know. It just seems like it's something plucked from a different era. The 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 time we live in is that people leave their neighborhood and go move to other neighborhoods and gentrification and and all that. That uh, even you know this was set in seventies. Um, well, no, the the initial part is kids. It was set in seventies, but then you know you assume it's uh, you know twenty or so years later. Right. Um, that's about the time that these neighborhoods had fallen apart. So it's very interesting. And, and I would love to hear a perspective of somebody from Boston if, in fact, you still have that. Because in Chicago, you very rarely have the neighborhood where everyone sticks around. Maybe uh, it depends upon your culture, I think, too, though. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, for Europeans, I think that's definitely the case. But I think that for other other cultures, I don't think that's the case at all. Well, and uh, again, I guess it depends on the level of gentrification, which was not something that was happening in the 70s. But yeah, definitely. hit, hit – uh, Hit big cities pretty hard throughout the uh, the 80s and 90s. So let's talk about uh, the actors here. The notable, this was the first film since uh, Ben Hur, where you had both a Best Supporting Actor and Best Actor Oscar. So Sean Penn and Tim Robbins, and I, I would say rightly so deserved. I mean, these guys were just outstanding. Sean Penn, 
you know, played his character of Sean Penn, but with the intensity you would suspect. And then uh, Tim Robbins really played out of type. He was, oh yeah, you know, mentally damaged. I mean, here's a kid that was molested as a kid, and he was ostracized. And it, you know, you're shown that he obviously didn't get the help that he needed. I think the kids didn't when when stuff like this happened. You know, almost that they were blamed. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a, he's just a giant man when you look at him too. He's what six foot four or five, and yeah. he just he just shrunk. He just he just you know, d- disappeared into the screen. He was a he was a non-entity. I, I I mean I know Sean Penn for me is he's gold. I mean just like your Daniel Day Lewis. I mean I see anything this guy's in. I mean he's just unbelievable in this. So but yeah Tim Robbins is great in this movie as well. He's just totally I, and I think he needed a role like this. He's been in a lot of he'd have been in a lot of really bad bad movies. To the point of almost being done some crazy, wacky comedy screwball movies in between here and there. Yeah, those could be his, uh, the paycheck rolls. Has to do a couple of those to keep doing what he wants to do. And uh, no, I, I, I thought that they were, they, and they had very few opportunities to really play off each other um, because of the strange nature of their relationship. It was very interesting when they did get to sit down. There's one scene where they're having a beer on, uh, the back of Jimmy's deck, I think it was after the funeral, after the wake, you know, everyone was coming by and, um, and, uh, their wives were, were close friends and which sort of forced them to, to bond during this time. And, and you started to see a spark of life and, and the otherwise, you know, just, uh, just defeated, uh, uh, Tim Robbins. And, and you could see it kind of falling into this old routine of, Hey, we're buddies just sitting around having a beer. And, uh, you know, then it just shuts off. One word from Sean Penn just shuts him down. Let's talk about Marcia Gay Harden in here. Yeah. Pretty, pretty great. You know, even when she, again, when she's in some uh, cruddy movies, she really steals the show. I'm thinking back to her performance in Space Cowboys, which was just a dumb movie. Also, Clint Eastwood. Uh, maybe that's how they found each other, but um, just a really silly movie and an even sillier role for her. But, you know, just... It's interesting. She's, I don't think anyone would call her conventionally beautiful. She's not leading lady material, but, um, you know, just time after time, she keeps getting these great roles and, and just deserves every bit of it. Yep. Now let's talk about a leading lady material, Laura Linney. <laughs> Come on. How do you know? She is so vanilla. <laughs> I just. She was the perfect, she was perfectly cast in the Truman Show. She was just supposed to be playing. She's just supposed to be like the sitcom trophy wife kind of thing, you know? Right. I mean, she's just perfect in that. And the nurse wearing all white. Yes. <laughs> um, Anyways. And then you got Lawrence Fishburne. Lawrence Fishburne playing uh, a, a smaller part. Pre-CSI roles, you know? Yeah. Yeah, start, Lawrence start. Fishburne taking a small role here. Yeah, and uh, I was the black guy named Whitey. I thought that was... Uh... <laughs> Pretty good. I'm sure in the novel there was some story there, but uh, he was he was pretty good. Not a huge part, and he was he was definitely a bad cop. Yeah, yeah. And they're in he and uh, Kevin Bacon's good cop, bad cop. Let's talk about Kevin Bacon as a cop. Um, he's much better as a villain. Yeah, he. I I kept expecting him to be the bad guy. Yeah, it just. I, I don't know. I just do not like him as a good guy. I, I don't know. He's much better when he's just awful so 
<laughs> again, even in bad movies, like uh, what was that? even in like Hollow Man, where it was just a terrible script and it was invisible for half the movie. It still, it felt right that Kevin Kevin Bacon was going around, you know, raping people and killing people. Yeah, he was good in that. Actually, it was a terrible movie, but he was actually pretty good in that. Yeah, he is definitely the weak link in this movie to me. Like he just, I don't know. They, I feel like they could have found almost anybody, and it would have been better than Kevin Bacon in this role. I just un, unimpressed with his performance at mm-hmm. all. Even though he was the one investigating the crime and he was sort of the point man, uh, yeah, I don't see. I don't. I don't see what he brought to it. And it's interesting. I was. I was reading an interview with Clint Eastwood, the director. And he was saying that uh, these three actors were his first choice all the way around. Hmm. And I, again, I could see Robbins. I could see Sean Penn. Um, but sure, Kevin Bacon, why not? Uh, well, was it his first choice for the roles that he gave him? Mm-hmm. Really? Wow. That's what he said. So I, I just – well, so let's let's ask you this question. Who would have, have done this role better? I just kept thinking – and this is the second time. I watched this movie when it – First came out on DVD or HBO or whatever at the time. And so I rewatched it back when we were supposed to watch this movie. And uh, I just kept thinking about how um, how good uh, The Departed was. You know, another – was that set, that was set in Boston too, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And just how good the police roles were in there. Or, you know, you had the Leonardo DiCaprio and, and, the, and the Matt Damon and, you know – and uh, was Mark Wahlberg in that movie even too, where he's just like the crazy cop or whatever? It was, yeah. And all three of them in totally different roles all over the place were better than anything Kevin Bacon did in this movie. Well, so, you know, Mark Wahlberg was probably a little bit young for this one, but maybe Donnie Wahlberg. Oh, that was, yeah. I don't Got a think. Boston guy. <laughs> it just, he just didn't, he just didn't have that feel of that neighborhood at all to me. So I felt like he was he was the kind of guy that would w- would have moved on. Well, he did. I mean, he, he was a state trooper and um, they only brought him back in for this crime because he knew the neighborhood. Yeah, I guess. And and then maybe in that respect, he was good, but I, I don't know. I just, I wasn't feeling him at all in this role. And the first time he didn't bother me at all. And then this time when I watched it, I was like, eh, I'm not that impressed with him at all in this right. score. Good score. Yeah, it was. Uh, you know, I'm. I think I've talked about this before. I'm not a huge score guy. Every once in a while, you know, a piece will will connect with me. Or it, it was un unmemorable, I guess. Um, I guess I'm, I'm reading here music by Clint Eastwood. Hmm. I I didn't know he composed before. Um, just. I guess if the music disappears, it's it, it def- and it sets a tone or sets a mood. That's one thing. I guess that's a good thing. Uh, I, if the music gets in the way or it seems disjointed, uh, it's a different. But uh, I I, di- I didn't notice one way or the other. Yeah, I, I I liked it. I really liked it a lot. So I actually looked it up on uh, Spotify. I was listening to it a little bit, and I like scores a lot. So I, I was I was pretty impressed with it. I have no idea who did it. I didn't even look up who did it, but I just thought it was really nice. So. Dumb things like that, I guess. Not many people enjoy scores of movies. You'd be surprised. Um, a lot of people buy the scores. I remember when uh, Batman '89 came out. Uh-huh. I was all excited. I ran to the uh, ran to the Sam Goody to buy my copy of the soundtrack, and I accidentally bought the score. Oh! And I couldn't understand why they would even put put it on a CD. 
I just it, it just boggled my mind. I'm like, Prince made this entire album of Batman music, and someone <laughs> wants to buy, and you know, because I'm an idiot kid, this is Danny Elfman doing some iconic music. I was gonna say, like, I should have kept it. Defined but, Batman for 20 years, probably, right. till the Nolan movies with the crazy eerie sounds in the background. Oh man, I I, I still talk about when uh, in the opening scene of The Dark Knight, it's just like two notes that are so discordant and they're played on a violin or a cello or some stringed instrument and it just gets louder and louder and louder to your brain is going to explode and it makes sense because that's what's happening inside the joker's brain uh-huh it's and crazy you try to listen to those without the movie though and it's i mean i've tried to listen to those scores and i'm like this is like crazy music. So it's just this eerie sound. So should we talk awards? This movie was nominated for tons of awards, even though you didn't watch it. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> all, all up and down, all up and down the Academy Awards. Um, nominations, won some Golden Globes, just, just on and on and on. Uh, should we talk about nominations first? And sure. talk about, yeah. So nominated for best picture, best director. Uh, Marcia Gay Harden, Best Actress in a Supporting Role, Best Screenplay, Adapted Screenplay, and it won. You know, Sean Penn won his what second award? It's his second Best Actor. Sure. And then Tim Robbins also won. Yeah, and that was his, that was his first Academy Award. So you, Mister uh, Shawshank Redemption. I know, uh, but lost out to Best Picture to Lord of the Rings: Return of the King. Um, can't argue with that. You, you can't argue with that, and it, it, everyone saw that coming. A mile away. Also, best director was uh, Peter Jackson. Um, there's just this was the sort of lifetime achievement or the trilogy achievement awards that were that were coming. You know my feeling on the Lord of the Rings that the Return of the King is the second best movie to Fellowship. I mean, I can watch Fellowship a million times. So this was just his comeuppance. Like the Academy forgot. Oh, we probably should give him an award now. So yeah, I, I think. What they what the Academy did was just they viewed the three movies as as a single film, and that made much more sense because they they were they were not complete stories, even though they were amazing in their own rights. Um, no one says, ah, oh, you know, I loved that first one, but didn't feel like tuning in for the sequel. That's um, <laughs> how movies are made now. Right. Oh, too much money wrapped up in this stuff. Yeah, and uh, I think it looks like every. Um, Every category that that uh, Mr. Griver lost out on was they was to Lord well, of the Rings, and I feel like in a I mean I feel like in a, in a season without the, the Return of the King, this it probably would have won. Could have cleaned up, yeah. I mean uh, it's going against. Uh, I was just looking it up. Sea Biscuit, Lost in Translation, and I know you enjoy this movie, but I did not. Master and Commander. Oh, no, I was not a big fan. It was oh, fine. Okay. It was it was a fine movie. It wasn't. Oh. I don't think I don't think I've revisited it since the first watching. I was gonna say I I watched it that one time and I did not enjoy it at all. I kept yeah. thinking it would get better, but it, it never did. So, but yeah, this movie. I mean, for those two guys to just win it, and they definitely deserved. <laughs> feel like in in their roles, boy, they were solid. I mean, they make the movie what it is because it's a very simple story. It seems to me, and not a mystery necessarily. Right. Um. Another thing, and I don't know if this is art direction or if this is cinematography, but you know, the the they captured that so that that neighborhood. The neighborhood was tired. Um, nothing was clean. Uh, you know, it, it very much felt like 
you were driving down the street in Boston, or it very much could have been Chicago. Um, you know, the the cars had, the cars were a little little tired. Um, even you know, Jimmy's running his shop, his corner store. He's doing the books on pencil and paper with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth. There, you know, it's just um, the, the the little touches made made you feel like you were stepping into this into old timey, like they hadn't they hadn't left. 1975 that uh you know dave may as well have been a little kid and they were still fighting to to get him not to go into the car with those guys yeah i mean it was and even the houses you know it just feels dilapidated i think that's how you know you just take that away from the movie it it feels like you said just run down it's just Mm -hmm. and that's how the characters feel too you know like if almost like they've had this secret you know for 30 years and and you know it's just this overwhelming like just get wanting to give up on life a little bit. Sure. So comes through in that neighborhood. So, and this is where Eastwood is just amazing. You know, he just, he knows exactly how to film these movies. He's got such a knack for seeing all of it, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, I feel like no matter what movie I watch of his, I always feel that way. Or he, t- he took his time figuring it all out and he's definitely got a plan. And, uh, you know whether it's a good movie or a bad movie, and there's not that many bad ones. He uh, he does he just does a spectacular job of setting the story up. So why didn't he put himself in this movie? This is one of the few where he did not star. What role would he have taken? One of the child molesters. Yeah, I, I I guess you're right, and that's there. Were, everybody was of a certain age. Um, maybe he just didn't didn't find a place to put himself in. I mean, this is 2003. He's he's 80 now, or yeah. close. So he's 70 years old. I mean, does he really fit into these any of these roles? Sure. It's pretty tough to, you know, even some of those later roles that he starred in, where he did not direct uh, Line of Fire. I'm looking at right now is it's a little rough to buy him in those in those movies, and he's supposed to be an old guy. You right. Know? Well, he, well, I guess that that speaks to his. Uh... His talent as a director that his ego didn't cause him to write himself in, that he didn't create a character, you know, the, the curmudgeon down the street. <laughs> he's he's great in that curmudgeon role, though. That's mm-hmm. pretty good. But, uh, yeah, this, I mean, he, he didn't need to be in it either. I think, he, you know, that would have, you know, these are great actors, but not a lot of, they don't have that. It's not like Tom Cruise is in the movie where, you know, everybody's going to go see it because Tom Cruise is in it or, uh, you know, they're not actors like that. They're actors that you go see because they're good actors. They're not actors that you go see because they're making headlines in the tabloids every week. Right. And. uh, Well, I think also, again, speaking to his direction, that he's got a very understated, you know, style in his later roles. I mean. When he's dirty, hairy, or or in his westerns, there, 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 he was oozing ethos. But um, you know, as an old man, he never, you know, he could growl a line when he may have, uh, you know, spat it before. Where, and and I think, uh, and I and I think he got that out of his actors here. Oh yeah. Except for you know, Sean Penn had a few over the top moments, and <laughs> I won't, I won't do his. Uh, his crying and his 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 whining justice, but um, 
But I feel like those mo- moments are made for the trailers. Yeah. Like, oh, we're going to see Sean Penn emote. So I think it's also made for Sean Penn. Yeah, that's true. Well, talk about a guy who you didn't, you know, when he was younger, you didn't think he was going to amount to much. And maybe one of the biggest career 180s of all time. I mean, this oh. is this is Piccoli. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I was going to say he's a burnout. And then all of a sudden he becomes one of the most respected, you know, amazing actors of our time. So mm-hmm. like I said, I mean, no matter what the movie is, I look and I see his name in there. I'm, I'm going to see it because I know he's going to give a good performance. Yeah, he's going to have some over the top stuff, but boy, he, he really delivers when, when the time comes. Yeah. So. That's also, uh, you know, turned uh, act, actor turned director. And I don't know that we've seen other than uh, Into the Wild was his, was his big uh, big breakout, which I haven't seen yet. Neither have I. Okay. I, always, <laughs> I always see it. On my ne- and it's on Netflix, I think, too. And I'm always like, oh, I should. No, nah, I'm not going to see it yet. Yeah. So. But I think uh, he might be one that we'll see you know, make that transition and have maybe as big of a directing career as he had an acting career. That is true. I, there's a lot of them, though, now I feel like recently that have made these these jumps. I mean, Ben Affleck, you look at a guy like that that just is making some great, great films. Um, that could, again, I mean, he's had a spotty acting career, to say the least, and this could be his reinvention as, as a big-budget director. I, I'm really looking forward to Argo. It just looks like a fascinating script and based on a true story and the whole thing. Yeah. It should, I mean, especially being a sci-fi guy, it's going to be fun to watch. So, um, and then, you know, uh, what's the name from Iron Man? Oh, John Favreau. Yeah. I mean, you know, you got guys that started in, and you're right though. I mean, big box office guys like Sean Penn usually don't amount to much as a director. So maybe that's the takeaway here. I didn't see Favreau doing some big, you know, big, huge movies before he was, uh, the, the great director that he's, he's become. So well, he was Pete. Monica's boyfriend on Friends. That might have, may have his, been his biggest role, ironically. I'd seen some other movies that he was in, and that, who knew that he was going to be amount to as much as he did? So, right. Clint Eastwood could direct. I mean, it, it, if you had told me during the '80s that you know Dirty Harry was going to be you know one of the most acclaimed directors of our time, or right, because he, I mean, he directed going back a lot of those, a lot of his uh, crazy movies. I mean. The movies with the chimp, or yeah, the chimpanzees. He, I think he directed at least one of those, and he did Pink. I think his first movie was, or one of his first movies with Pink Cadillac, with his then wife. So yeah, I mean he's he's directed some movies, but he was certainly they weren't movies like these where everybody you know. I mean the, this movie was so well received, and we should get to this when we get to there. I mean, ninety eighty seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, 95% on the top critics um, awards uh, from Rotten Tomatoes, um, where you take out all the you know, bit, you know, simple reviews and go to the big, big, big reviewers. Um, it's a pretty huge movie, and is this his follow-up to Unforgiven? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. This was um. No, no. The box Unforgiven was 92. Million Dollar Baby was 04. I want to say. Um, so this was sort of a reinvention of his directing, I would imagine. Oh, he did direct Space Cowboys. Hmm. Oh God, that movie's terrible. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's bad, but 
I enjoyed it. I watched it. It was fun. Uh, it was pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he had, I mean, he had a stretch there. So it was Unforgiven. So it was 92. Yeah. And uh, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil he directed. Which uh, was an interesting movie. I don't know if you saw that one. Based on the novel, with John Cusack was in that, and uh, it was good, but I think it just didn't do the novel justice. Yeah, it was. I liked it. It wasn't terrible. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he, uh, yeah, Unforgiven, obviously one of my favorite westerns. So it's you know he's he's done some good, and Million Dollar Baby's a great, great, great movie. So, right. so, but he's yeah he's reinvented himself. I think. I mean, when he when he directed Unforgiven in '92. I was amazed that he could make a movie like that, you know, and now it almost seems like when he directs a movie, you just expect it to be great. And he made that transition in the 2000s almost seemingly out of nowhere, it seems. So that, so that is Mystic River. Yeah, no, um, I need to talk about, though, why, given all of these acc- accolades, acclamations, why in the name of all that is good in this world did you not see this movie? Well, let's talk about 2003. Uh, <laughs> I just started working. I was off, just got out of graduate school, still taking classes. Didn't have a whole lot of dollar, dollars to my name. Um, I just got out of the habit of going to the theater. And so if it was a choice between going to see Return of the King in the theater or Mystic River, I was going to see Return of the King. Um, this is pre-Netflix. So getting down to the blockbuster just wasn't happening. But you had HBO at the time. I'm I, sh- did not, I did not. Oh. Uh, again, money was a little bit tight. And so, you know, it, it just, once I got Netflix, it just kind of lingered on the list and never worked its way up. There was, oh, there was always something that seemed to be more important for me to watch. But uh, I got I got to say, I'm glad I've seen Mystic River. Yeah. Now, so we're and we're in agreement that this is something you should you have to see. Yes, I think uh, any student of film, any Eastwood fan, any Sean Penn fan, really anybody should see this movie. It's it, like we said, it's sort of a convoluted um, murder mystery here, but really just all around solid film. It, it, you know, clocking in at over two hours, it doesn't leave you, you know, waiting for it to to wrap up. Yeah, it definitely doesn't feel like two hours, like over two hours. It's it, even the second time around. It, I I feel like I, I got a lot more out of it even than I than the first time around. So maybe that's because I watched it on the iPad. That might have something to do with it. It could be. Your arms were getting tired, so you had to hold it really close to your face so you got to see the detail. Yeah, I guess I spent the early part of the two uh, thousands not watching movies because I didn't have any any money. But really, my formative years. Were the 90s. I mean, you saw a great independent cinema, the birth of independent cinema. You had filmmakers like Kevin Smith and uh, Quentin Tarantino, but you also had guys like Noah Baumbach. Baumbach? Who's Noah Baumbach? You haven't seen Kicking and Screaming? Oh, nope. Thank you for listening to You Haven't Seen, a production of the Robot Warrior Network 2012. Visit us at youhaven'tseen.robotwarriornetwork.com or email yhs at robotwarriornetwork.com.
familiar with editing. 